The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. It is, if you have breath in your lungs, you are in your right mind, you stand to your feet and just give God worship together. This is the first Sunday in 2020. Give him thanks for being here. You didn't have to make it. And again, you don't understand everything that you're going through. You don't know what's going to come, but you are preparing your heart to mind by worshiping yeah. Christ our King. Amen, yeah. somebody. Yeah. Have yeah. seat. Lord, thank you. We bless you because you're so holy and mighty. I, I'm, I am, I just don't believe once the preacher gets up here, worship stops. Mm. I just do not believe it. I think in every aspect of us, we worship him nonstop. Yeah. Amen, somebody. So I know this isn't the first time some of y'all worship, some of y'all pray 20. Uh, not 2020 in, some of y'all were on your knees, uh, and some of y'all have been worshiping and praying God this entire week. So continue to allow Him to guide you and lead you. Uh, don't allow uh, this year and month, even as you start to go out and try to set unhealthy and unrealistic goals that will lead to unhealthy perfectionism. But set goals that you will just be a follower of Christ. That's what we sing, right? Who will trust in Him. We allow him to lead us in every aspect of our lives. Amen, somebody? Amen. Amen. Good to see you this morning. And for those that are visiting us, thank you. Uh, will you put your hands together for our visitors? Thank you. I'm not going to make you stand, but I know I see some of y'all. Y'all are here. Thank you for visiting us here at Downtown Church. Uh, as we dive into God's Word, let me pray briefly um, before we go into it. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. You are great and mighty. You're the one that continues to show us that you are good no matter what we do. Thank you, Jesus, that your love is not conditional. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to be perfect in everything. Thank you, Lord, we don't have to make sure that we have everything right before we walk into these doors and sit in these chairs to worship you. But you're the one that's continuously transforming our hearts and our minds, making us new every day in order for us to have clear vision, in order for us to have a clear hope, and for, in order for us to know that you are our God and we are your people. And I ask that you think with my mind and speak with my mouth, Lord. Allow the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer, all God's people say together. Amen. Amen. If you're joining us for the first time, we uh, are going through the book of Colossians. We have been going through the book of Colossians and took a brief pause as we were going through Advent. As we pick up in Colossians, it's important to know that when this chapter, chapter 3 uh, in particular, we are in the intersect of belief and practice. Right? Where doctrine and life begins to integrate. And so this big idea that we've been laying out this entire time is that we worship. We actually allow ourselves to be submitted to the things that are supreme in our lives. We allow ourselves to, be, to, to submit to what's supreme in our lives. Some of you are saying, well, what are some of those things that are supreme in my life? What are some of those things that I'm struggling with? And Paul has fleshed that out from a doctrinal sense in chapter 
1 through 2, chapters 1 through 2. And then you see this exhortation in chapter 3. And as he's been fleshing this out, and I think what challenges us, much to relate to the people today, that belief systems are set up and some are toxic and some that are, are actually healthy. We believe here at Downtown Church that reading the Bible, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, having a good understanding of who he is, <clears throat> is a healthy doctrine, belief system in which we all should adopt. And if you have yet to adopt it, I want you to listen closely closely this morning. The applicability of this particular passage allows us to understand that sometimes family becomes the thing that reigns supreme in our lives. See, we look at the book of Colossians and oftentimes we've heard about the philosophies and the false teachings, but one of the false doctrines and the false teaching is, is that you only have one life and that you ought to do everything in this one life. That's a lie. God has given us eternal life if we believe in him. It's not over. We glorify him in everything that we do. And thus, if that's the case, I want you to really think about this. If I'm glorifying God in everything that I do, and my life uh, begins to line up and intersect with my doctrine, then what happens? The way that I spend my money changes. Because for some of us, because you have never had a lot when you grew up, and so you came from eating syrup sandwiches, amen, somebody, and then ramen noodles, and some of y'all may have had steak and fettuccine all your life. Right? Some of, like, I like to say some of y'all have come from the gutter to the butter and some of y'all already been in the butter. Amen. And you can't believe it's not butter. I just added that. But, but, the, but the idea in which you are challenging this notion that I have to sustain a life or get to a life, you're missing what Jesus has done in your life. You don't have to, you don't have to get anywhere. You don't have to strive to make that 100,000, to make that 200K, to make that 500K, to make that 1 million. That, that doesn't need to be a, the way what you strive to. Nor does it, my kid has to be, uh, uh, the IQ has to be at this level, or they have to get into this college, or they have to go to this school, or they have to have this GPA. These are stressors. Where in the Bible does it say that? Where in the Bible does it say that we ought to oppress our children by having high academic sta standards that are unrealistic? Where in the Bible does it say that we ought to have our children fight for perfectionism where that's unrealistic? Where in the Bible does it say that you have to be a CEO of a company? Where in the Bible does it say that you have to have your own purpose for your own life, for your own time, and doing your own thing? Where in the Bible does it say that? The chief end of man is that we worship him, we delight in him forever, we enjoy him forever. That is the chief end of man. Nor does it say you have to be a perfect spouse or perfect child or perfect employee or perfect. And this is what our text gets to. It does not say these things. And so you know what happens? We begin to adopt cultural and societal norms and we abuse our children by what? Over putting put them in every extracurricular activity, making sure that they're in everything, but they can't be in Sunday school. I'm sorry. What do we do? We even ourselves, parents and singles, we make sure that we are doing everything that we can to, to exercise all of our liberties and to do everything that we can do. So we travel on the weekends and we, we try to make sure that we take advantage of all of our free time, but yet we don't prioritize church, so we arrive here late. Doctrine and life begins to intersect. Belief and practice begins to intersect and steps on our toes in a deep way. 
This is what Paul does when he begins to talk about wives and husbands and how their marriage ought to live. See, there are things that we don't think that are such a big deal. They are a big deal because they begin to have our theology meet where we live. And if our theology does not meet where we live, we're lying to ourselves. We're not living a Christ-centered life and a Christ-focused life. If we're going to say he's our firm foundation and he's the one that we stand on, we need to make sure that that's him. We need to make sure that that's it. Our, our work should not be prioritized. I remember meeting with so many, uh, well, talking to one brother, he worked at KP, KPNG, and he was an accountant, and he talked about how he neglected his family. And on Sunday mornings, he would, he would leave church early just to go work. Many of us who are believers already know that that's an idol. Many of us who are believers already know that that begins to come and seep into our families, divide our households, and money and success and all of those things become the very thing that's our God and we worship. Amen? And so when we look at this, this idea, the big idea really comes clear here. We submit to what's supreme in our lives. And it's difficult to walk in the Lord when we're not aware of what's competing for our hearts. It's hard. It's very hard. And this issue that we have to face this morning is, I'm asking you this question. Does, does Christ rule over absolutely everything in your life? Does Christ rule over your marriage? Does he rule over your singleness? Does he rule over your parenting? Does he rule over your children? Children, does he rule over you? Teenagers, does he rule over how you act when you're outside of the house, when you're not in the sight of your parents? Children, are you allowing Christ to rule over your lives? Are you coming here every Sunday just to play a scheme? To hide and, and to just play and talk in the back or play video games on the phone? Are you here to worship God? You're not. Paul helps us to realize you are not excused from this. So our text is addressing even how we are drunk with power and control. I'm going to actually save the part in which he talks about master and slave for next week because I really want to dive into some of the difficulties of that text and how it applies to us to this day. But as we look at this, I want us to understand that the fundamental idea, the core of this passage is where you see in 24 where he says, you are serving the Lord. You are serving the Lord. Look to the person left of you and say, you are serving the Lord. Now look to the person on the right and you say, you're serving the Lord. Just tap him one more time say, you're serving the Lord. If you are then serving the Lord, here's the question that I want us to flesh out this morning. Is that how does God, how has God's rule challenged our personal and societal norms that we have in place? How have they challenged it? See, some of y'all, we, we, we don't realize how we have already drank, drunk so much of the Kool-Aid of society that we do things naturally that are not pleasing to God and naturally that are, all, that are all about ourselves that we forget that we have personal and societal devotions that, su that, trend, that supersedes what God has for our life. So when you look at, that's my auntie, y'all. She's from St. Louis, excuse me. Excuse me. In verse 18, Paul says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. 
Immediately, I feel ill-equipped in order to deal with the fact of what it means for wives to submit. So I don't want to become prideful, but what I believe and understand from what I've read um, from many scholars, both male and female, that this idea of submission is not one that we think today. And there are so many issues with the Me Too movement and from what we've seen with abuse in our society, from physical and verbal abuse, domestic disputes, and, and etc. from this idea where people have been, have been submitting to people or things, churches even, right? Pastors, husbands, etc. that have not, been, have not been godly relationships. But it's important to understand this particular text in the context of where he's talking to the Colossian church. This idea of the household church, household codes, were actually contextualized in a way where it did demean people. And it was also in a way in which it allowed abuse of power. And we find here Paul's exhortation and instruction is to encourage those who are what we consider new believers who amid all of this, they had once, once upon a time, that, right, they didn't believe in Jesus and they're competing with the philosophies to tell them how they ought to rule their household, how they ought to live their lives. And all of this contextually is not found in deep redemptive qualities. But Christian households are not supposed to adopt those. Christian households is what Paul is saying is supposed to look different. But you have to ask the question, what does it look like to have a Christian household in the Colossian church? Where did this and did this spread out? Where did this come from? Well, it meant to be the head of the household was the father. Uh, and what it meant for him is that under him was his wife, his children, extended family. And y'all remember when we first started this, I showed you the synagogue where you've seen the living quarters and you've seen family, you've seen worship, and you've also seen slaves' quarters in this place. Employees, retainers, and even political supporters all were under this head of household. And they were ruled by these codes. But some scholars who know and who have struggled with this has said this is a patriarchal and repressive, and repressive way for women and those that are under this household. And many scholars have struggled because they said that Paul is actually affirming behavior that is violent, abusive, oppressive. And what, we, what, what they struggle with is that because of the misuse in this text from several years, We've been, some of y'all may have seen Harriet Tubman, the movie. You haven't seen it. You remember the preacher preaching on the steps of the plantation steps. And what was he telling the people? Masters. I mean, our slaves obey your masters. Uh, because this is a text that they were using in order to keep them captive. And y'all heard time and time again where I talk about Dr. Howard Thurman, how he, his grandmother was a slave and she would ask him not to read texts like this or the Pauline epistles because they were used to keep them captive. I believe that there are also other men who are quote unquote godly men who've been using texts like this not to cause women to submit but to subjugate them to their own personal use and that's the distinction that we have to make because this morning we, we although there have been misuses of the Bible to abuse women and children that are ungodly we understand that Paul gives us redemptive ways in which we ought to look at this 
And so when we, when, he, when we have to ask the question then, what does it mean for wives to submit to their husbands and it's fitting to the Lord? What does that mean? How is submission fitting to the Lord? I want to clarify that submission here is not an inferior aspect. Submission here is actually empowering because we all, one or another, have to submit to somebody. Amen, somebody. So submission is not only for women. We are submitting. This idea of submission comes from uh, Genesis chapter 2 where he is saying to the wife she is a helper. Helper, empowering her husband and understanding that this then in the sense of the word is not one that is subjugating them. Then we cannot necessarily say or try to lighten the sense of its modern sensibilities. What I am saying, because y'all can be confused with what I'm saying right now. What I'm saying is we don't look at submission and say, oh, we need to find another word for it. We need to define it a different way. We need to make it a more modern, a palatable, palatable word that's, that's going to be easy. That's not true. That's not true. Submission is not easy. You know that by trying to submit yourself to the Lord. And it's definitely not easy. Wives, y'all need to say amen in this when your husband acting crazy. Amen. Okay. 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 I'm going to talk to you after church, Chef. I'm going to talk to you after But, the, but we, we ought not to take the original intent and exaggerate it and use it out of context. That's what I mean by when you look at the Roman law, under the Roman law, the ethical aspect in which Paul is trying to deal with the household, the head of household, there's been such abuse of power. He's saying, hold on, I want you to do it as it's fitting to the Lord. That doesn't mean you're captive or, or subjugated to someone's rule. That means that even though that you are submitting to your husband, you're doing it in a way that's an act of worship. And so this is what Susan Fall, who said this, when she pointed out wifely submission had, does not mean that the wife has to excuse her, excuse, has, has an excuse to follow her better judgment when she disagrees with her husband. The wife's submission to her husband is qualified by God's command, not man's command. It's qualified by God's command, not her own preferences, opinions, and even expertise. What it's saying is, is that you are looking to God in order to help you submit yourself to your husband. Single people, you ought to understand, you, as you're preparing yourself for marriage, so many, when I talk to some of my single brothers and sisters, I like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. Yeah, that, that's the proper precaution. <laughs> that's the proper precaution. Watch out what you get yourself into. I love you, babe. We, we good. But that, that is the rule in which none of us should enter marriage thinking to ourselves that we got it together. And that we won't offend our spouse, that we won't be the ones to drop the ball. In fact, we should be so humble that we are depending on God in order to help us be a married couple, a, young, a unit. This is applicable in any sense and when we talk about submission. But let me talk to my sisters to say that in this submission, it's not merit-based or it's not, nor is it conditional. So we, we don't, you, we, sisters, we can't say, oh, I'm, I'm going to submit to him when he get his act together. Or I'm going to submit to him when he do what he needs to do. Whether that's wash the dishes, take out the trash, buy you flowers, uh, get you an edible arrangement, um, get you the ring that you always wanted, the Bugatti purse, whatever it is. It's not merit-based. 
because it's fitting to the Lord and you're doing it to the Lord, it's an attitude in which you delight in the fact that you want your husband not to be passive. Your submission actually empowers him not to say, I'm going to take a, an excuse today and I'm not going to step up. No, sisters, you actually allow your husband to understand that his responsibility to lead is a way in which allows you to flourish is due to the fact that he's not passive. And then your submission also is a way in which your act of obedience is an act of worship that if he does not know the Lord, it actually points him to Christ. Because some of us struggle with that. When you're thinking about a head of a household today, or you're thinking about a household today, we know we have blended families, broken homes, adopted families, etc. So this idea and what we look at how a fam a fam what families look like today, it's difficult to try to essentially slap it down in, this, in the same context. This is not easy. But what I do want us to understand, sisters, is that your submission is an act of worship, not an obligation to your husband. Amen. So what that means, you don't put his will before God's will. Amen. Wives, you don't submit to your husband's will over the will of God. That means you don't put yourself in difficult situations. And th th this even gets to ideas of abuse. If you're a wife and your, your, your spouse is not a believer or he is a believer, don't submit yourself to abuse. Verbal, physical, emotional. Don't submit to that. Many homes have been broken and there are so many battered women who come into the church and who are out there isolated because they've had an inferior idea in which what, what it looks like to submit. Submission is one that's empowering. Why? Because the central theme is you are serving the Lord. You are serving the Lord. So I don't want any of us to look at women as if their role in submission is a, is a lesser than. Because the Bible also makes it clear that Lydia and Phoebe, several other women who were not necessarily married, if you will, or um, you even had divorce uh, and single, it doesn't mean that they're less than. Paul is just getting to marriage. He's talking to married, married people. And the idea of marriage at that time was so, it was so bad because it was a contractual agreement. It didn't allow empowerment for women. And so the church abused that as well in several different ways. And so this doesn't mean that women, you don't have your own mind and you don't have, uh, you don't have your own abilities to use your gifts. It's not oppressive, nor is it meant to be offensive. It's meant to be empowering. So this other idea in which we look at that then, a, a wife doing this in a way, it's an act of worship, it's fitting to the Lord. What is he saying to the husband in this idea of marriage where it's in a contractual agreement, right? And only to maintain the family lineage. God is, I mean, Paul is getting to some of the deep cores of it because everybody thinks, you can assume when you're reading this, that what it means to love is this affection or this romanticized idea of love. It's not that. What it is is that 
A man would marry a woman because it was contractually agreed upon and that they were trying to keep their family lineage. And so they didn't necessarily meet because they, they were deeply in love, madly in love with one another. And they, were, they had deep affections. That wasn't the main, that was not the main focus. And certainly when Paul is talking here, he's trying to get husbands to begin to deconstruct their idea of what marriage actually is and their role in marriage. And when you think about this, he's saying, I want you to love your wife. But then he says, don't just love her. I don't want you to be harsh to her. Do not be harsh to them. Just imagine the fact that these individuals are coming together because there's a contractual agreement, a contractual agreement that he can just treat her any old way. His eyes are wondering. He doesn't feel that he has to love this individual. All he feels is that he has an obligation. And so Paul is adding, again, redemptive qualities because you can see in Ephesians 5, 25 through 28 where he says, husband, love your wives. This sacrificial love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. This is one of the deals when I'm in premarital counseling and I'm, I enjoy talking about this because it is an idea that love, love, somebody say love, is actually a responsibility. It's a responsibility. It's not a feeling. It's not an obligation. It's a responsibility that you as a husband has and it doesn't mean that you dominate or rule. It doesn't mean because you are to love as Christ loved the church and giving yourself that you are to be dominating, that you have a level of entitlement. No, it means that you are to be sacrificial and your responsibility is not a right. It's a role. And the husband ought to certainly know that when you come into the house, and, 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 and I get it, this is not going to be a bunch of amens, this is going to be difficult at times because so many of us on, on, the, on different spectrums when it comes to this. But I do want to be sensitive to the fact that so many husbands, we are and can be passive that we allow our homes, the climate of our homes to be dry and cold because we are having issues of with asserting ourselves or being domineering or being self-serving or, or only making things about what the spouse ought, what our wives ought to do and not putting the onus on ourselves in order to know that we need to better ourselves by washing ourselves in the word. This is not one way. You don't just, let me walk, let me sanctify my, my wife. Let me, allow, let me do the work. The Bible is saying you should be doing the work through your sacrificial efforts to be sanctified to her. Nor does it mean, so what is, I'm going to give practical, nor does it mean when you make decisions, husband, that you don't have to make sure that you act like you got it right. So you make decisions on your own and they can become domineering. When you think that you're doing something, you are actually excluding your wife from sharing in the decision making, whether that's whatever you purchase or however you, the vision for your family and the goals that you set. We have to understand that the union is an idea that you ought to be 
pursuing like-mindedness and not allowing society to drive your understanding as a role as a husband. Society gets to men when we don't feel like we're leading well, we have to puff our chest out. We become more aggressive and not sensitive, not empathetic. And what, is this, what does this mean then? Oftentimes what it means is we abuse, the, we abuse the way that we love our wives. We abuse the way that we love our wives. Our eyes wonder. We scroll on Instagram or Facebook. We begin to, in, to we begin to, um, we begin to, to entertain DMs. We fall into the trap of allowing our hearts and our, and our, and our emotions to, to actually be roused by another woman. We leave the house mad and looking for affection in somebody else. What it's saying is, is that you don't allow yourself to be governed by those dudes. You have a responsibility. You ought not to be controlling or manipulative. In every way, you ought to be watchful. Your wife does not need to be an afterthought. She needs to be thought for, thought of. And it's hard when in, in your heart, you haven't worked through some of your issues. It's difficult when you don't know that caring should not be crushing. This is how John Stott put it. Caring should not be crushing. Service should not be dominant. Facilitating self-fulfillment should be frustrating, nor should it destroy. But in all standards as husbands, we should be bearing the cross of Christ on which he has surrendered himself even to death in a selfless love for our bride. Children, I got to continue on. We can do several different sermons with this. Children, children, look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Where my son at? (laughs) Children, do not, I mean, children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Then he goes directly and says in 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Just the other day, I was telling MJ not to say booger. Okay? And he called me a booger. I was like, that's very disrespectful. Um... And the thing is, it, it stood out to me that he felt comfortable just calling me a name. And so, I, and, and then he said it to his mother. So I said, you know what? So, come here. I don't ever want you to call me a booger. I don't want you to call your mama a booger. I don't want you to call your friends a booger. I don't want you to call nobody a booger. No, I don't want you to call yourself a booger. Nobody's a booger. Even if you got a booger in your nose, I want you to call it something else. Call it a diamond. And what I was trying to help him understand is, because he was disgruntled and he was upset, I was trying to understand that, like, I'm your father and I'm I'm a human being. And just because you are upset at me, if me giving you instruction, it does not mean you just say whatever you want to say. That's not how it goes. 
But I have to admit, within that same hour, I must have said booger. And he was like, Daddy, see, you said booger, you're not supposed to say booger. And I felt like, I felt okay, this brother's trying to hold me accountable. <laughs> and at five years old, as he is holding me accountable, I said, well, son, you're right. But what that doesn't do, it doesn't justify you saying it or calling me that. You need to understand that as your father, my responsibility is to make sure that you are not disobedient to me, nor are you disobedient to the Lord. I am leading you in a way that you understand your responsibility and role as a believer. I want my son to be a believer. And in order for him to understand rightful obedience, he cannot see a father who only tells him what to do in a conditional sense. He has to understand that my parenting is an act of worship. Having said that, as a father and father and mother, verse 21 applies to fathers and mothers because we have the responsibility of not provoking our children. And we, when you understand that, you, what you see in this context is, is that children, what you may not see in this context, but if you read, children were seen as lowest slaves. Children were not seen with high dignity and worth. You know how you go to the hospital, you see a new baby, or somebody comes to church with a baby, and you, you, you see Knox up here, you're like, oh my goodness, Knox, great job. Children were not adored. They were shunned. And so when Paul is giving these redemptive qualities to parents, what he is saying is, is that you ought to treat your children like individuals who are created in the image of God. And what this looks like is, in the 21st century, you ought not to demean your children by relegating them only to, to the corner or to being quiet or to just doing what you, what, the, what, you, what you say on every single command. You should not allow your children to only be governed by the effects in which you felt like in your broken home experience that they need to be led. That means you haven't dealt with your trauma. You haven't dealt with the things that are going on with you. And so when you want your child to thrive, this is why he says that they'll be discouraged if you provoke them. If you want your child to thrive, don't provoke them by treating them harshly, by only adopting ideas that if I, if I, if I, if I spank my child, then they'll do what I say. If I strike fear in my child, then they'll do what I say. That's not the right way. I have to check myself several different times of not discouraging my son by the tone of my voice. That as soon as I say his name, I don't want him to stand in attention. I want him to hear love. But some of us have been taught that as soon as you say your child's name, they ought to stand to attention. But is that, is that, that oftentimes can be discouraging because it doesn't allow them to feel as if they have the ability to, enter, to, to talk to you in a loving way. They only feel as if they have to submit to whatever you say. Does that make sense? So it's unnecessary to put pressure on them. Pressure on them to finish schoolwork like you want them to finish schoolwork. It's unnecessary for you to put pressure on them to complete a musical like you want them to complete a musical. It's unnecessary to put pressure on them to try to make it to the league or to be the next, the next Serena Williams because you wanted that desire. 
Your children can be discouraged by the way you provoke them due to the way you, 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 by the way you have your own desires. That's unnecessary. And it doesn't allow them to engage. They become very disengaged. And you know how we can tell? By the way that they worship. By the way that they worship. If children, do, they don't feel liberated to worship, they don't feel as if they can come to this place, they, can feel, they don't feel like they can talk about God, sometimes it's because they don't feel like they can talk to you, parents. And that's hard. Because you're the one that they're supposed to come to. They shouldn't be discouraged. One thing Serena helped me with is that like in church, I don't need to tell my son every time to instruct him or to correct him because next thing you know, church will be about instructions and corrections. Right? Sit this way. Do it this way. Don't be quiet. Don't do this. Don't do that. Now he's discouraged. I don't want to be in. I don't want to go to church. This actually gets to some of the difficulties that we have in our society because so many times we don't realize that our children are discouraged because not because we're, we're, we're supposed to be perfect parents. Oftentimes it's because we're broken individuals as parents. We're broken individuals as husbands, husbands and we're broken individuals as wives. One of the things, and, and we will get to the masters and the slaves um, part next week, but one of the things that I don't think he's only talking about applying to slaves is that whatever you do, do it to the glory of the Lord. Do it to the Lord. Because, verse 24, you are serving the Lord. I read The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates, <clears throat> which is a novel that's actually pretty good. It's really good. Uh, and in this novel, it was it, I, I was complex. I was perplexed by the idea in which Hiram, this entire time, uh, was hoping that he would get the inheritance of his father, Hiram, which Ta-Nehisi Coates called slaves the task, and he called those that were not slaves quality. The task meant that he um, had to work in the fields or in the house. His father was his master, which meant that he slept with his slave mother. Hiram had a brother whose name was Maynard. Maynard was not as smart as Hiram. He was not as well put together as Hiram, but he was white and he was going to be the heir. A big deal in this book, a theme in this book is that Hammer wanted to be the heir. He wanted, he, did, he felt as if his submission to his father would actually earn him a spot as the owner in the, in the house in some hierarchy. But the idea that he did that meant that he didn't understand his position. And to his, to his dismay, his brother became the one that would lead the house. I'm not going to give you the full story and give it away, but what I found is all of, all of Hiram's story was conditional. His submission was hinged upon the fact of what he would get. And when he didn't get it, 
he felt like he had to get away. I feel as if we can relate to him. Because if we understand ourselves to be inferior, or if we have a bad understanding of our roles in marriage, we have a bad understanding of our roles in parent or children, what happens is our way that we submit and love, the way that we obey, the way that we begin to encourage our children is all conditional. That if I am going to do it because of this, but can I assure you that when you take communion this morning, this is not conditional. You are not subjugated to realities that are not godly. Only thing that you should be under is Christ. The bloodstained banner. One that gives us dignity, worth, and value inherently. And that reminds us that we are the redeemed and let the redeemed say so. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that as we allow ourselves to walk in freedom, that we understand you, you are the God of our life. You're the one that rules us in every way. And Lord, as we get to texts like this, it is difficult to understand how so many people have used it the wrong way and it's it's hard for some to believe in. But I pray, Jesus, that you work in the hearts of those that have struggled. We work, Lord Jesus, in the hearts of those that are, are battling with texts like this or even just in life because people have used this against them. I pray, Jesus, that you use this moment in order to empower, to show your love and your intentional care for your people. Uh, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people say together. Amen. Let us continue to worship God in our